Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, uh, we are going to continue our coverage on coronavirus, but uh, take a different pivot and talk with uh, and, and someone who is running for office in the midst of this whole crisis. Uh, we have never talked with uh, congressional or Senate candidates or any political candidates for that matter uh, on our podcast. So it's a truly a great honor for me to welcome someone who's running uh, for office locally uh, for the 9th District uh, of New Jersey. His name is Alp Basaran, and he uh, is, is a Democrat running running uh, to challenge the existing incumbent. Uh, one of my friends, Aiden, helped me introduce my, my, myself to Mr. Basaran and then uh, we're really happy to, to have him over remotely from New Jersey so that we can talk about his campaign, talk about his experience uh, growing up as, as an undocumented immigrant initially, but, but then eventually going to Vanderbilt and truly living the American dream and today running for Congress. So uh, thanks so much for joining me all the way from New Jersey, Alp. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time because you have such a fascinating story. I, I, why don't we just start from Thank there? Because you. You, you arrived in New Jersey when you were four years old. You grew up undocumented. Your, your parents did not speak English. They worked at minimum wage jobs. And then today you went to Vanderbilt, became a lawyer, and today are starting your own company and running for Congress. It's just such an inspirational story. And I would love to uh, learn more about it. Absolutely. The America I grew up in was a very different America than the one we live in today. Um, you know, I came to the United States when I was four years old. Uh, we overstayed our visa. Um, you know, we became undo undocumented. I mean, back then, being undocumented did not carry the stigma that it has today. Um, and yeah, that's right. My parents worked minimum wage jobs. My dad started out at a gas station. My mom started out at McDonald's. Uh, they eventually became successful as well. You know, my dad was a New York City cab driver. Uh, my mom became a hairdresser over time. Um, and they retired uh, in those jobs. And I have to tell you that I never grew up in fear. And that is the thing that strikes me as being so different today. Uh, back then, even though I was undocumented, I was not afraid of police officers. I was not afraid of the government. I did not think that someone was going to come into my house, kidnap me from my parents and put me in a cage. Um, I was not afraid of, you know, someone taking me and shipping me off to a foreign country I, I barely recognized. We have a lot of people like that in the United States. They grew up in the United States since they were very small children. And yet um, ICE and CBP are hunting them down, trying to deport them. And trust me when I tell you, they would be unable to recognize their supposed home countries because they came here when they were tiny, in some cases as babies. And this is the thing that's very different about America today. Um, I have to say... I was always politically aware, uh, you know, growing up in the United States, you have to, you have to think about everything that I went through as, as a millennial, right? I'm, I'm one of the first millennials. So when I was graduating from high school, um, when I was a couple of years younger than you, uh, you know, George Bush was running for office and 
miraculously, his ideas made sense to a lot of Americans. And he won the election in the Supreme Court through Bush v. Gore. And we went through the Bush years. We went through eight years of gays, guns, and God. And there were always politicians that that spoke to me and appealed to me. You know, there was Ralph Nader. There was Dennis Kucinich. Kucinich had a similar story. He kept talking about how he lived in 13 different um, places when he was a kid. I kept moving around when I was a kid in New Jersey, too, because of our economic situation. And so Dennis Kucinich appealed to me. He kept saying that he lived in a car for a while. And I found a lot of those stories familiar. Um, And then, you know, for a while, John Edwards talked about two Americas and he appealed to me as well. Um, Obama, when he first ran, we all thought he was, you know, young and we all believed he was super progressive, you know, didn't work (laughs) out that way. But but that that was what we thought when he first ran. And so there were always politicians that appealed to me But I was never politically activated, for the lack of a better term, until Donald Trump became president. I mean, you know, hearing, you know, people talk about, think about like John Edwards talking about two Americas, how much that appeals to you as someone who grew up in very economically distressing circumstances like myself. But it's not enough to sort of feel under attack and debilitated, you know? When Donald Trump came along, um, you know, he completely shocked to my very core my understanding of what it means to be an American and what America is about. And once the Muslim bans started coming and they wrote three or four different versions of it in order to make sure that one of them passed muster in the Supreme Court, um, they they came up with, like I said, all of these crazy ICE raids to terrorize entire undocumented populations in the United States. I mean, that's when that's when I said to myself, I have to do something. And I was in a relatively comfortable position by then. You know, of course, after law school, you know, my wife and I, we had hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans. We had catastrophic medical illnesses in the family. We had to pay a lot of uh, medical debt down. We, you know, we went through some pretty financially dire circumstances ourselves, even though we were professionals. But, you know, by the time Donald Trump came along, I said to myself, look, I've been, I've had a career for 10 years. All of my student loans and, and, you know, debts and medical bills are paid off miraculously. (laughs) You know, I, I saved up a little bit of a nest egg and I have the power economically to finally do something like this. And, Once Donald Trump attacked with his policies, I thought, let me run for Congress. This is the time to do it. I can afford it. Um, Now is the time to go and do something to truly send a message out there to every American, to everyone who feels left out, to everyone who suffered, you know, ridiculous medical bills in America, to everyone who lives in fear for being undocumented, for all, for the sake of all Muslim Americans, that America is our country too. You know, uh, we love this country as well. And we want to do everything that we can to make America strong in the world again. And nobody should doubt that. And with that goal, I decided to run. When I went to Vanderbilt after uh, high school, you know, it's funny, if you were to uh, look up some of my friends back then and ask them uh, what was ALP like, 
you know, some of them would say, look, he he was a social democrat in a sense. I mean, truly funny. Um, I had uh, people, students there tell me that a lot of my ideas sound great, but they sound foreign. They sound like they're from Europe. Because when I was in high school, you know, the few people that wanted a sort of, you know, social democratic uh, system where everyone had health care paid by the government, you know, they were thinking of Ralph Nader. A lot of people forget this, but one of the reasons Bernie appeals to me is when I look back at my high school years, Ralph Nader was saying a lot of the same stuff. The Overton window has shifted Absolutely. for public discourse. Absolutely. We went from being social Democrats with, you know, foreign names who were looked upon with suspicion to being normal Democrats who really want something that the rest of the world has as a human right. So all I'm trying to tell you is it's 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 a it's a confluent. It's sort of a, a coming together of circumstance. You had Bernie normalizing a lot of the ideas that always that I always believed in to begin with. You had Donald Trump, on the other hand, attacking undocumented immigrants, just terrorizing them, right? And all, and you also had me personally uh, be in a place for the first time in my life where I could afford something like this. So all of that came together. Um, and and I decided to run for Congress. Uh, it's never usually one thing. Um, if I if I have Absolutely. to be completely honest, uh, a lot of politicians, a lot of people boil down their origin story to one thing. Frankly, that's a bit ridiculous to me. I mean, everyone has a story before they run for office. We're complicated people. We have complicated backgrounds, and it, it's always a confluence of different. Um, you know, circumstances that put someone to where they are today. So that's my story. So it sounds like to me uh, that the election of Donald Trump uh, sparked this uh, political activism in you and uh, the fact that America has been moving to the progressive left and more and more accepting to those views uh, have also inspired you to see that, oh, there is a part of the political spectrum that I truly identify with and belong to. I agree. I think a good way to put it would be Bernie Sanders opened up a political space in the American uh, political psyche that allowed a lot of people like me to run for office and, you know, not have to compromise with respect to a lot of the things that we believe in. Uh, so what do you believe in? You know, I got to tell you, um, I actually read an article a couple of days ago um, referring to me as a democratic socialist. I've yes, never yeah. actually said I am a democratic socialist, <laughs> and which is really odd because I agree with Bernie on all of his policies. But the reason the term, you know, I find the term very strange is because Bernie himself is not a socialist. You know, he does not believe that the government should control the means of production. I do not believe that the government should control the means of production, except under very rare circumstances, such as the Veterans Affairs Network, Health Network, for example, for net veterans, which actually is fully owned by the government and the system works there. And that's fine. But when it comes to a lot of different sectors, um, when it comes to single payer healthcare, when it comes to education, when it comes to just a lot of different things, 
you know, um, a lot of different uh, reforms that we want in financial services. Neither Bernie Sanders nor Elizabeth Warren, um, none of them believe that the government should control the means of production. So the term democratic socialist has always been very confusing to me. And the truth is, none of us are socialists. The truth is we are social democrats. You know, we believe that the government should have a prominent role in empowering people. This is no different than social democrats in Europe. Honestly, this is no different than what Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted. This is a very American idea. If you look at Franklin Delano Roosevelt's State of the Union speech, I think it was in 1945, he talked about an economic bill of rights. This is a very American idea. And I'm not entirely sure why all of these policies, which are perfectly normal, which many other countries have, are referred to as socialism or democratic socialism. I mean, things are getting a little out of hand, to be completely frank, and people are talking less about the issues and more about labels. So, you know, if you want to talk about the issues a little bit, the first four policies that we came out with were healthcare, education, immigration, and the economy. We never changed the order of those policies. We never, you know, adjusted them based on what other people were saying. Um, and on my website, the first four policies that we announced are exactly the way they were when we announced them. I truly do believe that those are the policies that we have to focus on, whether you want to call yourself a social democrat or a democratic socialist or a plain old democrat in order to save America, because we're far behind in a lot of these areas. And, you know, it's going to come to hurt us in the future. No, I, I, I totally agree with you that we should move away from the labels and focus more on the issues, because I was, it's very interesting. I was talking, I was interviewing this uh, a very prominent leftist uh, thinker and economist. His name is Branko Manalovic. And, and he was actually saying, if, you, if you're truly thinking about the kind of socialism uh, the scholars talk about, you should be taxing the middle class for like 80% or something. Absolutely. You know, none of this is truly foreign, neither to America, thanks to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, nor to the West, thanks to what we've seen in Europe for decades. So again, and I think we need to have a national dialogue, a national conversation on how to tackle these policies one by one. Because think about it. We announced Healthcare is the first policy we came out with back in September. And we did that because this issue was very personal to me, right? Because of all the medical illnesses we went through, because of all the medical bills we had to pay. You know, there were times at night when we were praying for uh, the medical bills to be under a million dollars because our insurance had a yearly limit of a million dollars for each individual. And if you go beyond that cap, the insurance doesn't cover you anymore. How crazy is that? <laughs> when you need health insurance in America, health insurance usually disappears. That is the reality, right? So how would you respond so, to, to maybe the, the criticism that, yeah, if you institute a universal health care, first of all, it might not be uh, physically responsible. Second of all, it might be uh, too unrealistic to peel away healthcare, that private insurance that a lot of people already like, you know, millions of uh, people already like, 
And why not just move it to a public option? Why do we need a universal healthcare? Absolutely. And I'll do you one better. Uh, another thing you can ask as a follow-up to that is, you know, how do you convince the people of New Jersey to back you? There are a lot of pharmaceutical companies in New Jersey. There are a lot of medical device companies in New Jersey. The healthcare sector in New Jersey is massive. And everyone, all of these people in New Jersey, they work in the healthcare industry and they depend on the healthcare industry for, for their income. So how do you convince them, right? That is another problem. And to answer your question, that is what I was getting at when I was talking about how we announced healthcare as our first policy back in September. You know, think about the cost that we paid as a society when months after we announced that policy, we suffered through COVID-19. So I would flip that question right back at you and ask you, what do you think costs more? Shutting the economy down completely for months on end because we do not have the medical infrastructure to fight coronavirus or actually having gone to a healthcare system that is public that would have allowed all of us to get the care that we need, that would have given the country an excellent medical infrastructure, like Germany, like Taiwan, like South Korea, and that would have allowed us to tackle coronavirus as soon as the outbreak happened. Well, I think we're talking about two issues here, right? One is the healthcare infrastructure. Uh, I mean, the U.S. suffers from issues like per capita uh, ICU bed numbers is very low and, and the healthcare system could very well easily be overwhelmed. Um, but that's a different debate compared to the actual healthcare system, the, the, the setup of whether it's single payer or multi-payer or public options or, or such. So uh, I think absolutely you're right that the U.S. should have had a better healthcare infrastructure just, and, and we should have totally done a better job uh, on a federal government level to respond to the crisis. But, but that doesn't mean we need to move to single-payer healthcare per se, right? Yes, it does. And I disagree with you. And I'll tell you why. Please. Because our healthcare system is entirely built on profit. So instead of health, instead of care, instead of you know, what is best for society, instead of what's best for Americans, the entire system is built on inefficiency, and profit, right? You have private health insurance companies, all of these payers out there that, quite frankly, I'm not entirely sure what their purpose is, other than adding inefficiency and paperwork to the system, right? They make insane profits, but there seems to be no purpose to them. Same thing with the pharmaceutical industry. You have these sky-high prices for pills and pharmaceuticals that a lot of people need that cost a tenth of what it costs in the United States and other countries, a 20th in some cases of what it costs in the United States and other countries, right? So you have an entire system built in profit, on profit, right? Um, another example is, uh, remember, you know, back when I had those, uh, you know, familial medical issues, we were in the hospital, we were in the intensive care unit, um, and, you know, I had a family member who was on an ECMO machine for about 11 days. And in the middle of, you know, the whole thing is incredibly expensive to begin with. But in the middle of that, 
uh, entire um, tragedy. We needed emergency surgery suddenly. And it turned out that the only person in the hospital who could perform that surgery was out of network. Now think about it. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I read the details. I made sure that the hospital was covered. I made sure that you know, all the doctors that cared for us were covered. How was I supposed to make sure that during a medical emergency, in the middle of an ongoing medical emergency, a doctor that had to perform the surgery was supposed to be in network? I mean, we received a $35,000 bill afterward. So this is what the system in its entirety looks like. Now, to get specifically to your question on the consequences of that for public health care, let me give you an example. Out in California, they had this company that made ventilators, or at least they wanted to. They wanted to make a smaller, more efficient um, version of a ventilator for, you know, just generally. And they, kind of funny, I mean, they, they proposed it as an alternative to the giant machines that we use today. And, you know, the U.S. government, I think it was the FDA, gave them the contract to do it. So this was during the Obama era. And you actually had, think about it, a small company in California who was going to solve all of our problems that ended up happening and existing today, right? The company got bought out by a pharmaceutical company. And folks got reshuffled, laid off. I forgot the details. But long story short, the project was effectively killed, right? Um, and that was such a tragedy because the folks in California had already gone to Washington, had showed the FDA prototypes of the ventilator. The, you know, the folks in, the, in government loved it and everything was moving forward. And suddenly the project died and folks su suspect that the reason for that is the company that bought out that company, you know, the pharmaceutical, the big medical company that bought out that smaller company in California, they made the old style ventilators, the inefficient, expensive ones, right? So they they bought the company out there for $100 million, which was frankly not even money to that pharmaceutical co company, just to kill that project, most likely, right? So... This is, the, this is a very specific example of what I was talking about. When you have an entire system, through and through, an entire healthcare system, built on making money from the pain and suffering of Americans to the point where you have an entire industry, like the health insurance industry, that frankly serves absolutely no purpose other than introducing inefficiency into the healthcare sector, right? And paperwork, incomprehensible paperwork into the healthcare sector. Well, these are the kinds of problems you're going to have, right? You're going to have a situation where you get coronavirus and everyone has their health insurance through their employer. And, you know, everyone's getting laid off left and right because the economy completely shut down. And because of that, no one has health insurance now, right? Everyone who, remember, millions of people were laid off recently, right? Millions of people were laid off, which means millions of people lost their health insurance because it was tied to their employer. And now they're afraid to go get tested for coronavirus because it might be expensive. They're afraid, oh, even if the test is free, what if I have to stay in the hospital, 
What if a doctor sends a bill to my home? Everyone's afraid. Absolutely. These yeah. are the consequences of not having a public health care system. And it's the same damn issue when you look at the entirety of the situation, no matter how you cut it. And I'll tell you something else. When you think about how to fix it, this is why we need single-payer health care. Because it introduces government oversight, accountability, and for the lack of a better term, adult supervision into an industry that we absolutely need for our health and well-being. And all of the money that we would save by not paying premiums, co-pays, absurdly high pharmaceutical drug prices, co-insurance, out-of-network doctors, such as the example I gave that was personal to me, yearly limitations, right? Yearly limits, denied claims. I mean, think of all the expenses that we would not have to suffer through, because trust me when I tell you, if you're not paying for healthcare through your taxes, you're paying even more every which way out of pocket through your paycheck anyway. But the difference is, when you have that health insurance through your employer, you're essentially gambling in a Vegas casino. While everything is going well and you have the job, you know, you can keep paying your premiums. And if you have your job, you're probably healthy anyway. The insurance company pays your doctor's minor doctor's bills along the way. Everything's great. But the minute the house owes you money in Vegas, the minute you get a debilitating illness, you can't go to work or, you know, coronavirus hits and you get laid off because you're unable to do your job, you're going to lose your health insurance. And guess what? Cobra is completely unaffordable. Yeah, I totally Obamacare see Obamacare health insurance is absurdly expensive for ordinary Americans. So all you're going to be left, up, left with is the house winning in Vegas at the end of the day, right? Uh, no, I, t I totally see what you're saying because uh, I, I, I guess another criticism of uh, the current system is that given how, you know, quote-unquote broken America's current healthcare system is, what you would truly need is a bottoms-up, complete revamp of the system, uh, wh whether it's in, in the form of a single payer or in another form. But, but yeah, I, I absolutely see, see what you're saying. Absolutely. But what about the point about uh, the realist, how realistic it is to actually getting this thing passed? I mean, Obama struggled a lot to get Obamacare passed. And, and Are you the, kidding? Oh, Obama, uh, hold on. Let me let me no, cut no. you off a little bit, and then yeah. we'll let you finish your question. Okay, <laughs> Obama did not just struggle to get health care passed. Okay, um, a lot of presidents struggle to get bills passed. What Obama went through was completely different. When Obama mentioned health care, and this is a very personal issue to me because of everything I went through. I mean, you're going to be graduating from Princeton one day, you're going to go into the private sector possibly to pay off some debts. How would you feel if you had to stay in there a couple of more years in order to pay off your loans or in order to pay off your medical bills, right? So this is, you know, a lot of policies, they have real life consequences, right? And I was so hopeful when Obama started talking about health care 
that we were finally going to get a system that made sense. Remember, when he was first elected, we thought he was young and progressive and everything, right? The Tea Party popped out of nowhere, funded by the Koch brothers, solely for the purpose of stopping the health care plans that Obama wanted to push through. And they started these nonsensical, you know, pseudo fake populist <laughs> movements around the country. Suddenly you had hundreds of Americans in the streets in front of state capitals with American flags, with guns screaming, saying, the government can't force me to get health care. I love my freedom. I mean, that is what Obama had to go through. You had all of these deranged people pop up around America. And I looked at that and I said to myself, what in the world is going on? I mean, eight years of gays, guns, and God under George Bush and the lunacy Karl Rove introduced into the American political psyche as if that was not enough. Now we had the Tea Party that we were dealing with, right? And they basically waged trench warfare, right? You had all of these politicians pop up around the country talking about how, oh, they don't want government interference in healthcare. They don't believe in a handout. They value freedom. And therefore, they believe in the Tea Party. I mean, what Obama faced was complete lunacy. Right? And, and, and I have to resonate well, now, with you. Now go on. I, I got no, that I, off my chest. You know, you know my, <laughs> the, the setup of my question was actually very much in line with your sentiment because uh, one could say that the Tea Party was never there to pass legislation. They never cared about uh, actually getting anything done except, you know, quote unquote, shifting the overland window to the right or. or Bravo. It, 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 but what is very different uh, from uh, the progressive left of the Democratic Party, what is very different with people like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, uh, is that people like you actually want to get legislation passed. You don't want to just be a left fringe who is out there shouting to block uh, the Republicans' legislation. You are there to pass stuff. So how do you make sure uh, to actually work with uh, whether it's the, the democratic establishment or even people on the right, where, where people just disagree with you in general to get things passed. Because, uh, you know, I was just listening to this podcast by Ezra Klein, and he was saying how, let's just say the, the progressive Democrats are 30% of all Democrats. Uh, and if you want to get things actually done, you would have to reach across the aisle at some point. right? So I would just love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, in order to actually get great policy done, how do you get it? Honestly, we have to convince the American public that we're right. Because on this issue, there does not seem to be middle ground because of the economic consequences of what we want, right? Um, there are pharmaceutical companies and health insurance companies that are making billions in profits uh, precisely because of the healthcare system that we have. And they will spend every penny that they have to fight these legislations and the way they're going to fight it is through the Republican Party. Right. So I'm not entirely sure that reaching across the aisle and telling Republicans who are resisting us on this that this is the right thing to do for the American people will necessarily work. It might work to get the Democratic center and the, you know, um, 
sort of all the Democrats that would normally be against something like single payer health care, we might be able to get every single one of them on board because of coronavirus. I mean, the health care infrastructure of the United States, as well as our health insurance, because it was tied to jobs, um, and now we have massive unemployment. You know, health care in all respects in the U.S., failed so catastrophically to such an extent over the past six weeks that I think finally all Democrats might be on the same page with respect to single-payer health care, right? Really? You are that optimistic in, in, in thinking I that think the I am entire optimistic. Democratic Party? I am optimistic. If we can build a public movement, which we're trying to do right now, if we get everyone's attention on coronavirus, the jobs and unemployment situation, and the health care that's tied to it, and how we got into this mess, where we had to shut down an entire economy because we can't test people, we can't get the economy back on track. We don't even have enough ventilators. I mean, if we go through the arguments of what has happened and how we need to be better prepared next time, I think a lot of centrist Democrats will be reluctant is one word, afraid is another, of telling ordinary people that they can't give them health care. That sentiment, I agree with you. But what do you make of the fact that the Democratic Party is going to very much consolidate around Joe Biden and, you know, quote unquote, the the establishment moving into uh, the primary and into the general election in 2020 and... Well, that is an interesting point, and I agree with you. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wished that Bernie um, was the candidate, of, you know, um, alternatively, Elizabeth Warren. Look, compared to Trump, I would have taken any Democrat on that stage. I mean, anyone but Trump. Um, but sure, I mean, my ideal choice was Bernie, um, as well as Warren. Uh, that being said, what do we do with an imperfect candidate such as Joe Biden? Well, I think we're going to have to convince him. I think, again, I do sincerely believe that the coronavirus crisis, the pandemic, has been so catastrophic and has put our healthcare problems front and center uh, to such an extent that we can build enough momentum and pressure within the Democratic Party to even convince Joe Biden. Uh, I would love to go a little bit deeper on the part about those who disagree with you, uh, because there are many kind of contending theories regarding how political candidates usually communicate with those who disagree with them. And, um, you know, many believe that the failure of Sanders and Warren rooted basically in the wrong notion of politics that they all they had to do was mobilize their base and they didn't have to reach across the aisle because i mean what bernie was basically saying is that if you don't agree with me that's fine i'm gonna inspire millions of young voters to turn out but that didn't actually happen and warren kind of you know very tragically failed in uniting the progressive and moderate democrats together and her vision didn't work out and so it seems that you know the the, the two contending theories that political scientists often talk about is that, first of all, um, there are people who disagree with me and I just have to deal with it. And the second theory is that the the people disagree with me now, but had they actually had the chance to listen to me, they wouldn't really agree with me. I, they would have been able to be convinced. 
so I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on what you make of it because it seems that Bernie and Warren precisely failed in, in convincing those who disagree with him. You make a good argument. And I have to say, you know, there is truth to that. Um, I would, qu you know, let me quibble a little bit, not too much, on the technical details of that. Uh, you know, accurate, but at the same time, you know, I wonder how many doors were knocked on, right? I'm hearing that we knocked on a lot more doors in California than other states, which may explain, you know, some of the performance associated with the Sanders campaign um, in the elections. Um, so I would, you know, and did they put out enough uh, progressive candidates that actually had community support? Um, or were some of those candidacies motivated by, you know, money and Twitter supporters? And, you know, I, I mean, how much how much social mobilizing an organization is going into this? So I would I have my doubts about that. So I'm not entirely convinced that the movement, the progressive movement itself um, has been operating the way traditional political parties do around the world, not just in the United States, in mobilizing the base, right? Because um, I'll tell you one thing, uh, a lot of times uh, people have conflicting interests, they have conflicting values as voters. So, you know, no, very rarely are people single issue voters, they care about a lot of different issues. And do we know from field research exactly what people want, at least those who are sympathetic toward progressive policies? And are we sort of crafting our policies based on that? I'm not entirely sure that that was done. Um, so leaving, leaving all of that aside a bit, um, what do we do? You know, do we reach across the aisle or at least to people who disagree with us? How do we reach them? And did Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren fail to do that? It depends on what you mean by reaching people who disagree with you. Um, so I believe that moving forward on the health care issue, I think we can get all of America behind us if we work on the ground effectively. I think that when it comes to other progressive policies, we're just going to have to test the waters and see what people want, right? Uh, do, do, do folks want a wealth tax? I think a lot of Americans would be okay with that. If we're only talking about, um, you know, the top, top, top creme de la creme of the rich in American society who have armies of tax advisors and lawyers helping them avoid paying the fair share of taxes that they should, right? So I think it's issue specific. I think what has happened is to some extent, it went from being issue specific to movement based to the point where if you voted for certain candidates, you were a democratic socialist. Um, and if you voted for other candidates, you were not a democratic socialist. And to be completely frank, I think a lot of Americans would have been okay with democratic socialism at least on two, three major policies, if they actually were convinced and talked to about uh, what those policies might bring them, right? I'll give you a perfect example of some of the disconnect that I'm talking about um, that I lived through. So I started canvassing in my district in July. Um, first time politician, you know, uh, decided to run in June. 
uh, what do you do? You know, you grab a couple of flyers that you printed out and you start knocking on doors. Best way to build momentum, right? Start visiting small shopkeepers during the daytime uh, when they, you know, and then go, you know, to the side streets, start visiting everyone at home. Surprisingly, I found out that a lot of Democrats in my district were not concerned as much as I thought that they would be with impeachment. I mean, I was shocked to hear that. Because, but look, this is what field research is. You go around, you knock on doors, you figure out what people care about, and you get a sense of why that is, right? I got to tell you, I was shocked when I walked around door to door in my district and people were like, eh, you know, it's Donald Trump. What do you expect? Or some people were like, ah, I'm not sure I care. And when I talked to them a little bit more, it turned out that they cared more about health care. It, you know, they cared about jobs. They were thinking, you know, we've been living here for the longest time. Why do we still not have any jobs here, even though we're 17 miles from New York? Right. Um, they cared about schools. They cared about, you know, they talked about, you know, hey, we have all of these public schools that are practically, you know, segregated. There's a lot to say about, you know, I think anyone who wants to go into politics has to hit the streets. You have to be in the streets six hours a day, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, meeting random people, knocking on doors, right? You have to do that because you have to get a firm understanding of what people care about so that you can convince them that you're right on the issues that you care about. Because I really care about healthcare, and I really want to talk to them about that, right? Uh, and and you would say field research often might give you different insights compared to the ones that you would read online about how, in general, Americans feel about progressive policy. Absolutely, but being a, an ordinary guy um, who had bills to pay for the longest time and who had debts to pay for the longest time, and who's thinking about, you know, are my kids going to be healthy now? I would say that it's not a big surprise that someone who's a relatively normal guy um, ended up caring most about the issues that I went out with, right? Healthcare, education, economy, immigration. I mean, these are the things that I really cared about. Um, and it turned out that the things that I care about are the same things that a lot of American families in my district care about. And it, it goes to show, you know, that you have to do your research. You have to be true to yourself because when someone asks you questions about these issues, you got to tell them why you feel so passionately about them, right? It, it has to be a very, you know, I wish we had more politicians that took some of what they said seriously. I mean, politicians try so hard to lie about who they are what kind of issues they care about. You know, there are politicians out there that make up personal stories. I mean, the, the whole field is just littered with insanity. And I just wish there were more politicians who were true to themselves because I think at the end of the day, we can have disagreements on priorities, right? We're gonna have to pick, right? Congress is only a two-year term, right? What are you going to get done in two years? What are you going to get done in four years? What are you going to get done in six years? What are you going to get done in eight years? What do you really 
care about down in your bones, right? What's motivating you to care about them? I totally am convinced uh, how uh, what you believe in are, are genuine beliefs that are uh, coming from your background. It has to be personal, I believe. But for myself, it is absolutely personal. I just want to push back a little bit on that. Then someone from the Republican side of the aisle could say, oh, someone in my district was so personally negatively affected by Obamacare. They just really did not like how you know, their private insurance was taken away or they have to uh, pay a certain premium or such. So, so if we all reason through it based on our personal experiences, I, it seems even harder for anybody to, to get to a middle ground, to agree on anything. No, I agree with that, which is um, why I think that coronavirus and everything that we've suffered through it showed and proved that not only were we right about all of this on a personal level, but we were right about it from a policy perspective. But let's what, what if we go beyond healthcare? Well, let's talk about maybe uh, gun control or maybe some other issues that uh, other people may genuinely have disagreements with you about how policy should be implemented. Because I don't, I don't think it's uh, rare to, to see uh, valid arguments on both sides of the aisle. Well, it depends on what they want, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of people, I agree with you, at some point it's going to have to come down to priorities. I'm a single-issue voter, in a sense, if you want to think about it that way, when it comes to the American dream. And, you know, one of the reasons I want to be uh, really upfront about all of this is because all of this is coming back to, you know, I cannot hide the fact that these are all coming back to my personal experiences. Again, I would just be disingenuous if I said I ran all the numbers and all of the economic models and, you know, these are the issues that I think are feasible and therefore we should go ahead and get these issues. Uh, that would be completely disingenuous. I mean, my issue is the American dream. I want everyone to have a shot at it. And the components of the American dream for me are healthcare, education, jobs, and immigration, because in my personal experience, those are the things that will get this country to where we need to go. Now, what do you do with all the sort of mechanics that you mentioned? Well, that's when priorities come in. A lot of people, I think, misunderstood Bernie. A lot of people believe that Bernie and his, you know, firebrand rhetoric of democratic socialism is all about, you know, these draconian policies that we're going to implement or not implement. I mean, it's almost as if ordinary Americans have forgot that politics should always be aspirational. We should always reach for perfection and exactly what we want, right? And barring that, if we have limited resources and we just cannot get everything we want, right? And I accept that, that is the world we live in. Resources are limited and that's why I think, you know, a lot of people I wish talked about Bernie a little bit more in that vein. Like, look, as Democrats, these are the politics we should aspire to. Alp, I, I, I see what you're saying in terms of aspiring for a better future. 
But there are also criticism of how Bernie is just this stubborn old man who has always believed in this, which is good in the sense that it's consistent, but also bad that he actually just never got anything done. I mean, I mean, in terms of passing bipartisan legislations or, 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 or actually working across the aisle, he does not have a good track record compared to someone like Warren. Uh, or Biden. So, so uh, one could say that, yeah, you are reaching for the future, but but you're just, uh, what what are you actually doing? So I think we're thinking about this a little differently. I think the problem in America is not so much that we're not sure what the right thing to do is, right? Um, this is one of the things I hate about economists and lawyers. Uh, when you hire an economist <laughs> or a lawyer, just speaking from personal experience. I really they, want to be an economist when I grow up, by the way. So we're economists and lawyer talking well, to each other. Well, very yeah. similar attitude because they <laughs> always talk about the way things are. <laughs> they are obsessed with the way things are. Well, he, here's what the situation looks like. Here's we're boring we're and colorless. Yes. <laughs> they never ask the question, you know, I'm... I'm exaggerating, of course, some of the mask, but you know, by virtue of their profession, they're not trained necessarily when practicing their profession to ask, what should we aspire to? That is politics, right? So you can agree, as I do, with all of Bernie's politics to the point where you're thinking, wow, this guy just made all of my thoughts uh, since high school normal, right? But you can also say to yourself, look, I got to come up with like, a priority list of these policies. Think about how I want to list them based on what's important to me. So that if we have limited resources, if push comes to shove, we can focus on the ones that are most important to me personally and just go from there. But the problem that we need to focus on is the reason people do not sort of aspire to these policies and then get the best they can Instead, we get something that's terrible. The reason for that is lobbyists. I mean, it's just never the case that a congressman sits there and goes, this is the right thing to do, but I can't get 100% of this, so I'm going to get 80%. No, lobbyists come into your office. They try to influence you. They give your campaign tons of money. Um, Again, like I said, who do you think bankrolled the Tea Party? Koch brothers, billionaires, Wall Street financiers, that was the Tea Party. You th- do you think it was a populist movement of patriotic Americans that took to the streets for healthcare freedom? Just let's just get rid of lobbyists to the point, uh, you know, to the extent that it is constitutionally feasible. Let's finally let American Congress people make decisions for themselves. Uh, I'll be, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, I totally see you're saying. Uh, all I'm sometimes kind of concerned about is is that um, you know I, I I would talk to some of my you know quote unquote moderate Democrat friends and they would have the concern that sure they agree with Bernie sure they agree with the policy but it seems that he has just this sprawling plan of just saying oh we're just gonna get everything done like how am I gonna do it we're gonna just mobilize people we're just gonna go in and get everything done uh, and, and so, so it just seems that you are a much more realistic version of that in the sense that you would outline priorities and saying this, if, if I could get one thing done, this is the one thing I'll get done because it is very realistic to unrealistic to expect a president 
to get more than two or three major legislations passed, right? It would be very unrealistic, um, I think, to, to expect Bernie to go into the office and get all his promises delivered. I mean, I wish. We're talking about two different problems now. We're not even going to have Bernie in office. You know, you're talking about two different problems. Your question was a hypothetical one, which I was happy to accommodate um, since I'm a younger politician. Older politicians never entertain hypothetical questions. I took your question to mean, Al, if Bernie's in office and you're in Congress with him, how do you get all of his policies done? I, I really don't see a way, even if I agree. Right. right. But this is a different question now. Now we're thinking, oh, my God, we're not even going to have Bernie. We're going to have Joe Biden, who is a very imperfect candidate. Well, uh, in defense of Biden, I think, uh, first of all, he has done some great things uh, throughout his career. And but, but let's just say his current platform. Right. You, you could make the argument that. Back then, when 2000, 2008, when Obama ran as a, you know, quote-unquote progressive, he was really progressive at that time. But if, if you put his exact policy stance today, he would be, you know, dead center in, 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 a, in an establishment. And I, because the Democratic Party has really shifted left in the past eight years or, or, or more, you could really say that even Joe Biden is labeled as a moderate today. He is actually putting forth very progressive policies. In, in, in the context of older times. So, so he is uh, going to do some good in, in championing progressive causes, even though he is running as a moderate. Is he going to champion progressive causes is the question that I struggle with. Um, you know, I'm not someone who is a never Biden Democrat. I mean, I never was, I never will be. Because, you know, Donald Trump is president. If Joe Biden does nothing else, um, but stop ICE raids and the terrorization of an entire community of undocumented people, as well as legal immigrants in the United States. If he stops using ICE as a public policy tool solely to terrorize people and pander to his base, if he puts an end to the Muslim ban, um, if he does a little something with respect to bread and butter policies to make the lives of Americans easier, I would say that he will be a better president than Donald Trump. We're talking about your question of how do we get someone like Biden to move ahead with progressive policies when he himself is simply not progressive? I mean, I think that's the reality. Well, let's talk about your election a little bit, because you keep using the word we and it seems that you very much align with, uh, you know, the, the part of the political spectrum as progressive Democrats. Well, I mean, I, I will say that I think there's some truth to the fact that Bernie inspired a lot of non-traditional uh, political candidates to get into the political spectrum and run for office. And we went through a period where you know, AOC won and Ilhan Omar won and Orshida Tulebe won. And we suddenly had, you know, two Muslim women in Congress. And, you know, a lot of people, myself included, started thinking, you know, wait a minute, we can do this? <laughs> you know, this is realistic. Uh, what's going on? Um, so it definitely opened the door. Um, that being said, you know, everyone has their own personal reasons for running I would say that mine is the time was just right. And 
I have to say, um, at some point, when I was canvassing around, uh, you know, once I started canvassing more generally in the African-American community, uh, you know, once I ventured out of outside of Hispanic Americans and Turkish Americans and Muslim Americans um, and Arab Americans, once I ventured out uh, in October, November-ish and spent, you know, the rest of the four or five months going through the rest of Patterson and Clifton and Lower Bergen County, I have to tell you, I mean, <clears throat> what I saw in Patterson, one day it just, I just sat down and I cried. You, you know, I have to admit, like I said, I'm not going to pretend to be someone I'm not. Ever since I was a kid, I, I, I've been going to Patterson every weekend. Um, but, and, and, and I've always gone to different parts of Patterson, but I never really went door to door or had any relatives that would allow me to play in the streets of the first ward or the fourth ward of Patterson. I'm walking through the street and I swear to you, I was propositioned by a prostitute three times on you know, three separate occasions while I was sitting in my car going over the signatures. Because sometimes, you know, at the point when we were collecting signatures, right? So this was much later. But, you know, initially, same thing. I mean, when I was going through the streets that I had to visit, going through the flyers, sitting in my car, I would have ladies knock on the, on the window. And I thought that I would think that they saw me canvassing. So I'd lower the window. Say, hey, how's it going? How can I help you? And they'd say, you know, and then they would ask me a question. I would say, nope, sorry, you got the wrong idea. The amount of poverty there, the amount of, you know, intergenerational, I'm going to call it hopelessness at that point, at this point, the amount of drugs, the amount of, I mean, it is just, it was just so unbelievably sad that, like I said, one day I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I just sat down and cried. It was truly unbelievable. And you know, the point I'm trying to make is, how did this happen? You know, how did we, you know, I understand that there are a lot of Rust Belt cities around the United States. I understand that, you know, even Donald Trump talks about how he wants to bring jobs back to all of them. But for, for God's sake, I mean, Patterson is located just 17 miles from New York City. And South Patterson, South Patterson, where I've been going to since I was four years old, right? And central Patterson, like where all the shops are, right? I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, you, you don't have the same, same thing, right? How is it that the first and fourth wards, how do, how is it that like certain parts of Patterson heading up to Wrigley Park have been completely left behind in America? I mean, that has to be priority number one. We have to solve that problem of poverty, we have to bring jobs and look, we have to get everyone their health care. It starts with health care and public services. We have to get everyone out there to be able to send their kids to decent schools. We have to get everyone jobs. And if they're undocumented, we have to get them their documentation and green cards. We have to fix it. You cannot have an entire population of people living 17 miles from New York who have been completely left behind by the system, right? And like I said, 
as, as part of our street operation, I went into all the homes out there and, and, you know, kids were playing on the same block, like little children for crying out loud, just tiny little kids. We're playing out there right next to all of this. It's just unbelievable. I, I totally see your, 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 your sentiment here. I mean, the, the amount of astonishing inequality and, and how um, jarring the, the system has really screwed over certain groups of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think issues like the coronavirus is only exacerbating it in, in such an intense degree. Um, I've been trying to sound the alarm about coronavirus in Patterson for a while. No matter how dense you think New York City is, no matter how dense you think San Francisco is, no matter how dense you think Newark is, I invite you to go to Patterson. You have homes out there that have 10 people living in it, 20 people living in it. We're not just talking extended families. We're talking three, four different families living in a two-story large house that extends into the back, right? There's very little personal space. It is an extremely dense area. And I would say that Patterson, in terms of uh, the minimal nature of personal space and in terms of how packed people are in their living space, Patterson is probably one of the densest cities in the United States. Because when you're in a fancy skyscraper in Manhattan, you know, I mean, at some point you can, you can isolate yourself from the rest of your apartment, right? You just have to make sure that you respect the white right of way when people are passing each other in the halls. You are dense, but you are not causing any harm to each, any possible exactly. risk. Exactly. Yeah. Patterson is a completely different situation. On top of that, you have, you know, an entire population of people that already do not have health care. On top of that, you have all these undocumented immigrants who do not have health care, you know, um, and coronavirus out there, you know, once it hits, it has the potential of spreading like absolute wildfire, right? And we could not even get a testing site established in Patterson. So what do you do with this? You know, an American city, Rust Belt city, extremely dense. People have no insurance, a huge undocumented population. Everyone's afraid of going to the doctor. Everyone's afraid of authorities. And now you're going to have coronavirus spreading like wildfire and the whole place is helpless. Right? What do you do? So these are the problems that we need to solve. These are very real, very bread and butter problems. We need federal money. You know, we need to convince people that all of these policies that we want to do, they're policies that we believe in. They're policies that our communities want, and they're the right policies to go with. And I have to say, the idea, now that I have a comprehensive understanding of my district, a very detailed understanding of my district, I have to say we have to figure out what to do with Patterson as one of the biggest priorities in our district, because 
if we cannot get a Rust Belt city like Patterson where jobs disappeared and urban blight took its toll, that's only 17 miles away from New York to be rejuvenated, then the rest of the Rust Belt in the United States, trust me, has absolutely no hope. Absolutely no hope, right? So we need to increase transit with New York City, get direct transit between Patterson and New York City. We need to clean up the amount of crime that we have that a lot of times happens because of corruption through no fault of the people there. Did you know that in Patterson last year, eight police officers were arrested for corruption? Did you know that? No, no. You're shaking your head no. They, they sold drugs. They beat citizens. They robbed citizens of their money. They illegally stopped and searched folks. They were operating like a gang. Eight police officers were arrested by the FBI, and they admitted their crimes. Two former mayors of Patterson were hauled out of City Hall for corruption, right? Corruption is one of the problems, right? And if you're a federal congressperson in this district, you have a moral responsibility to tell every single mayor, to tell every single city council person, to tell everyone who's a Democrat in the district that, look, if you engage in any kind of corruption, if I get any whiff of it, I'm going to bring the entire party and the entire strength of my office to bear down on. And I think every congressperson has a moral duty to utilize that entire skill set to clamp down on local corruption. Sounds like you are you are not just a concern with, you know, national politics and single payer universal health care for everyone, but you are also very much concerned with local situations, which which I absolutely agree with. But um, I, I, I suppose coronavirus must have changed a lot, though, right? C to campaigning in, in, in oh, this coronavirus thing. completely killed my street operation. I mean, the one place where we were kings, you know, we lost in a sense. Um, I had posters up. I had met every single shopkeeper, shook hands with every single one of them. I had posters up from Broadway Street and Main Street in Patterson, all the way down to Passaic City, the end of Passaic City. Now we're wow. talking about miles, and we're basically talking about the three densest, most major locations in our district, right? Um, my posters were all over the place. We were all over the streets. We were canvassing, campaigning everywhere. But, you know, our operation was completely killed and, you know, because we had to we had to switch to a completely digital environment. Um, you know, how's that going? I suppose it must be so hard to actually affect voters. See, that's the thing. I mean, we phone bank. Uh, in addition to phone banking, we're still calling uh, through word of mouth everyone that we can find to make sure that they know that July 7 is the new election date and that they absolutely need to vote through uh, the vote-by-mail procedures that we have. Um, but at the same time, let me tell you, how many times have you uh, gotten a phone call from someone and decided to vote for them? How many times have you gotten something in the mail 
and said, oh, this guy or gal looks uh, really interesting. Let me vote for them. Um, how many times have you just seen a random email and said, okay, this is really effective on me. Let me go vote for them. I mean, politics is about touch. You got to get out there and you got to shake hands. You got to talk to people. People have to see you. They have to meet you. Um, they have to... They have to watch you get angry when they talk about an issue that you care a lot about as well. And they're really angry about it. And you're really angry about it. And you both see completely eye to eye. They have to see that authenticity and feel it. We don't have that anymore. You know, you have uh, to go to townhouse. You have to do so. So uh, I gave plenty of speeches. That's what I miss the most. I, so the, I, yeah. What about Zoom speeches? What about online? Yeah, we're going to do online rallies, but um, we're having, you know, to be completely honest with you, think about it. Everyone is going through some kind of job insecurity or health insecurity. Um, so let me give you an example. I've been unable to ask for money since the coronavirus crisis hit. Um, we have a great email system. NGP Van works perfectly fine. I have plenty of volunteers on my team. Um, Aydan is one of them. They're helping me out. <clears throat> We're perfectly fine. We're good to go. It's just that how do you tell people who are going through job insecurity and who are losing their health care and who are possibly filing unemployment benefits that you want their money, right? So, you know, when I send out these emails, they still have the donate button at the bottom, but... I've stopped saying, you know, please donate a couple of dollars to our campaign. I mean, the whole thing sounds ridiculous to me, to be completely honest, you know. Um, but that's okay. That's fine. The other thing is, you know, it, th that's sort of, that's why I wanted to say that to answer the, the online Zoom meeting question. You know, we're having Zoom meetings all the time. Again, we're doing phone banking. We're doing, you know, online meetings with everyone that we already know. <laughs> it's not like you go to a community center, you grab the microphone, there's 200 people there, you rock the house, and everyone says, I want to meet that guy a little more up close, let me go shake his hand, right? Online rallies are just not the same thing. Um, when we did some of those online advertisements um, hey, we're having an open meeting. Anyone can come. Five people would show up. Yeah. Maybe 10 yeah. maximum. Yeah. You can't do it that way. You have to fight your way into it. You have to get, you have to grab people that you're talking to and say, look, we're having a meeting on this day. Can you come? Can you attend? You know, do us a big favor. It'll be great for you as well because we'll get to hear more about what you have to say and we're open to ideas. Join us, right? That's the way you get crowds of, 50 people, 100 people. It doesn't work otherwise. So what are the creative so, solutions? What, how, how can you fight through this? Well, we're doing everything we can electronically. We're doing everything we can remotely. Um, as, as you alluded to, though, I mean, this is just not the same campaign that it was a month ago. And anyone who says otherwise is simply lying, right? Um, but... It's a double-edged sword. So, you know, because of the vote-by-mail system, the election is also extremely unpredictable. I mean, you know, you could get a, you know, cucumber or tomato from the market, uh, put it up as a candidate, and let it have a legitimate shot at this point because 
to be completely honest, you have everyone voting by mail and the sort of everyone suffering from job insecurity and healthcare insecurity. And on top of that, everyone, you know, everyone has something on their mind right now that's health related or related to their future. You have family members that are dying left and right. Um, my parents live next door, you know, right next to us, and they've been unable to leave their house since this whole thing started. They're voters, right? So in this kind of situation, you know, how are, you know, the candidates supposed to get votes? How predictable are the elections? This is one of the reasons that the county heads of the Democratic Party insisted to Phil Murphy in New Jersey that he push the date forward. Because New Jersey actually has a very up and running and professional vote by mail system. A lot of people in New Jersey just vote by mail. We're not like other states. This is not a new thing to us, right? But we still push the election a month ahead of time because the county Democrats were afraid that, you know, the elections were unpredictable and they were going to get unpredictable results, which in some cases is great for people like me. But in other instances, you know, how do you make sure that you eat the fruits of all the street work that you've done, right? Because as we know, candidacies and campaigns, they're not one on Twitter. They're not one on Facebook. You know, they're not one through Zoom meetings and outside, you know, people from other countries and other states calling people on your behalf. It's a street fight. Every political campaign is a street fight. You know, um, I've, I've observed enough of them. Uh, during my life to know that you just got to get out there and it's a bare knuckles brawl and there's no other way to do it. So look, Bill, you know, Bill Pascrell, who I'm running against, um, he's in the same situation that we're in. You know, he did not even uh, campaign properly yet because he's counting on his name recognition and he was going to start his operations probably just a couple of months before the election and put up, you know, uh, yard signs everywhere and on all of the highways, you know, election time, you've probably seen them. He's probably relying on that. He's probably relying on the machine uh, to get people out uh, from, um, you know, with buses and everything and get them to the polls. He's not going to be able to do all of that effectively either. So I'm not the only one that's concerned is what I'm saying. I mean, my rival, he's in the exact same situation that I'm in, but it is extremely unpredictable. I mean, at this point, we're, you know, it's a battle of how do we reach the people that we've already reached and get them to actually vote on election day, right? Because it's the last thing on everyone's mind. Look, people are dying everywhere, right? Is there anything else, uh, other policy that you think would be important to convey to our listeners? Is uh, something that you think we should, we should yeah, really I, touch on? I think we talked substantively about healthcare a lot. Um, I think with respect to education, you know, like I said, I want fully funded public schools because a lot of our public schools are suffering. And, you know, even in Patterson, I think they're looking at a $65 million budget deficit um, this coming year. You know, a lot of our public schools just don't have resources anymore. And we got to save these kids' futures. You know, and, and every every adult that wants to get educated, they should be able to go to public college or trade school and pick up a skill without having to pay anything. So, you know, we talked a little bit about that, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, immigration amnesty is self-explanatory. Um, I would say that with respect to the economy, a lot, you know, one thing I want to mention before we, you know, you let me go is we kind of forget how we got here. We kind of forget how 
our economy was structurally terrible. You know, Donald Trump kept talking about how the unemployment number was low. Um, but when we came out with our economy for all policy, you know, back uh, back in September-ish, we kept talking about how unemployment was less of a problem, admittedly, because on paper, people were employed, but that underemployment was a huge problem in America that was structural in nature. We kept trying to, you can go back and take a look at some of our Facebook and Twitter posts from you know, September when we announced our third or so policy, Economy for All. Um, and, I, and when I released my video on the economy, on these big four policies, the four big ones, we prepared a video of me explaining these policies as well. When it comes to the economy, we kept hammering the point that we've entered a modern economic system of, of serfdom, right? Where you have a lot of people, you know, some people who are in very comfortable blue collar jobs, uh, white collar jobs and blue collar jobs, but primarily white collar where they have benefits, where they have a 401k plan, where they have, you know, the traditional, um, you know, uh, sort of vacation days and sick days and, and pensions that they would expect as an employed person. Uh, some people have that, but then you have an entire population of Americans, and I think it's approaching half now, that at the time, before coronavirus even, before everyone became unemployed, that just had temporary jobs. You know, again, this is one of the faults of Obama. Everyone had these temporary jobs. They had these, you know, freelance jobs. It was called the gig economy, right? It takes the economic risk from the employer and puts it on the employee. So in the old days in the United States, you had a lot of employers that were responsible for health care, for benefits, for social security, for, you know, uh, for, for a whole uh, gamu of, of good things that, uh, that employees had as part of being, you know, a member of a good company, right, back in the 50s and 60s. And unions were extremely strong. And then over time, and especially over the past decade or so, we went into an economic system where that, you know, risk was completely shifted to the employee. So now the employee has to get his own education. You know, corporate training is terrible these days. They expect you to be fully educated and trained by the time you walk in. They're expecting us to pony up for education. They're expecting us to pony up for health care out of our pockets. They're expecting us to pony up for, you know, social security benefits and all kinds of pensions and retirement benefits. Uh, if we're sick or if we want to take a vacation and we can't work for just two weeks, tough luck. You know, you're a gig employee. You're a freelance uh, employee. If you're not working, you're not getting paid. And the entire cost of that is still there. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Someone's paying for all of those things. It went from the people who were actually employers and had money and shareholders and wealthy Americans paying them to ordinary people paying them through their blood, right? And so now we have this system where a lot of people have jobs that they're overqualified for or jobs that just simply don't have an end in sight. They're living paycheck to paycheck and they have no idea what they're going to do 
if they get sick, they have no idea what they're going to do if in the future they need to live off of their, you know, there's no pension, there's no retirement benefits. It's just living paycheck to paycheck. And what happened was we kept talking about this dichotomy as part of our economic plan. We kept hammering it. And then when coronavirus hit, well, now we see why we were talking about what we were talking about and why it was so important. When the coronavirus hit, all of those people who were underemployed and were touted as model citizens who were, you know, now employed since 2008 and under Trump especially, now all of them lost their jobs, pretty much, right? All of these Americans are losing their jobs other than people who are starting to work for Amazon and other food delivery and whatnot services. But everyone else is just starving right now. So the, the, the economic prosperity was really built on fragility. It wasn't a sustainable system that, that was It's not sustainable. Equitable. It's a matter of risk allocation. All of these risks that are central to the running of a functioning uh, society should not be placed on the shoulders of ordinary Americans. The risk oh. should be on Americans that are profiting from the system the most and I would say that the wealthiest Americans who are not paying their taxes and their fair share are benefiting the most, you know, because they're billionaires. I mean, there's there's a lot here to unpack with respect to economic policy. I mean, we kept hammering it. We kept explaining it every door we went to. And people agreed. They said, you know, even if they themselves had a white collar or blue collar job with benefits, they said, I have a cousin. I have a brother. I have a you know kid who is now part of the gig economy, and I'm afraid for their future, you know? Um, what do you do with that? And it was, a, it was a house of cards. And when the coronavirus hit, the house of cards came tumbling down. And, you know, other countries didn't handle it that way. When you look at what happened in Germany, they kept the payroll going. When you look at what happened in other countries, their economic, uh, you know, ministers, they decided to shift all of their resources in terms of, you know, uh, stimulus packages to making sure payroll was ongoing and keeping the economy in stasis so that once the coronavirus crisis was over, everyone would just go back to the job that they had. They would not be unemployed. They would not lose their jobs. They would not go through the psychological effect of having lost their job, of thinking about how they're going to provide for their family. In America, we just decided to let everyone get laid off and give them pennies in the form of a handout instead. $1,200 is nothing. It's pennies. It's a handout. You're just cutting a check to someone that desperately needs that money and has to accept the consequences of taking it. All they're going to do is they're going to pay down their grocery store bills on their credit card. Yeah, it doesn't fix the underlying structural problems that the society faces. Absolutely, Absolutely not. Because when we, when the economy picks up again, and hopefully it will, we're going to realize that a $1,200 one-time, two-time payment was nothing, and that entire industries have been destroyed. And it's going to be a very long road toward a cut recovery, because we're going to have tens of millions of Americans that have lost their jobs, and they're not entirely sure what to do now. Because perhaps not all of those jobs are there anymore because those businesses didn't get supported, especially small businesses. And the money went to large corporations, you know, that were already in trouble. 
uh, even before the bailouts. And so we're going to have some pretty severe uh, structural problems in the economy. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why we need people who are experts in this stuff and who are thinking about this stuff and who aren't changing their tune and the stuff that they talk about on the campaign trail based on which way the winds are blowing uh, to go to Congress, right? Absolutely. There's something to be said about, and I think America will change moving forward. I think people are going to wake up and say, you know, let's hold our politicians' feet to the fire. Look at the mess that we got into. Let's figure out who's been saying what since, you know, the earliest days of their politicking. Let's figure out what they really care about. Let's figure out if they sound like they have good ideas and let's send them to Congress, right? But it's gonna—it's a process. It's going to take time to get there. I was just wondering if you were elected, it would be a big win for the representation of a variety of groups, uh, as you mentioned. Exactly. Undocumented immigrants, Turkish and Muslim Americans and such. Uh, what do you think such a victory would mean for, for contemporary American politics or the political movement that you represent? Um, I think this is a very forward-looking question, I suppose. Well, I think it would be proof that America is our country, too. I think it would be proof that, you know, there's still hope after Donald Trump. One of the reasons that I emphasized when you were going on about, um, you know, being the first Turkish American, the fifth Muslim American congressperson was, you know, just having another formerly undocumented American in there after an entire four years of just, you know, ice raids and undocumented people being terrorized, it would be such a huge victory. And, you know, everyone is complicit, in a sense, with what happened over the past four years. Did you know that in Bergen County, Hudson County, and another one, I forgot which one, in three counties in northern New Jersey, the county governments made $6 million a month for months on end, and I think they may still be making it, based on the number of undocumented immigrants that they're holding as a result of ice raids in their cells. Did you know that? How crazy is that? You have all of these undocumented people that are rotting in jail and county governments are making tons Benefit of money that. off of it. Tons of money off of it. Trump and his ice raids have been some of the biggest boosters of the budgets of county governments in northern New Jersey. And we're a pretty blue state. Think about that. How crazy is that, right? The, the insanity has to end at some point. And I'm hoping that it will end with, you know, the defeat of Donald Trump. That's why I cannot get behind the people that say, you know, ne- you know Bernie or never, like, you know, Bernie or bust. You know, we have to get rid of Donald Trump. He's having an effect on real families. He's destroying so many people's lives in America. He's, it's just, it's a different level of, of, of wrong with him. Um, but like I said, it would be a massive victory for undocumented Americans. And I think it would, yeah, it would be a new day in America. Yeah. Hopefully that new day will, will soon come. I, I, best of luck to the, to the campaign. And I, 
think, you know, just in our show, because the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I just want to ask you at the end, what's your punchline here, you know, for your campaign, for your thoughts on American politics or the COVID-19 crisis? What's, what's the punchline? Punchline is, I know the world is a scary place. I know it looks like other countries are catching up and are about to surpass us, but vote for the American dream. We've got one more fight in, in, inside of us. And I think we can become a great country again. But to do that, we have to truly believe it. So vote for the American dream would be my punchline. Uh, and and I, I really liked how you said you are a one issue candidate and that single issue is to re revive the American dream and make it come true for uh, people of all backgrounds. Absolutely, again. absolutely. Well, well Alp, it's such a great pleasure to talk to you because, as I mentioned, this is the very first time that uh, Policy Punch has ever interviewed a uh, political candidate. And I liked how at the very beginning, when I yesterday, when I emailed you the questions, you emailed me back saying, Tiger, don't email interview questions in advance to politicians so that you can really grill them and, and, and tell who's, uh, who's genuine and who knows their stuff. Interestingly, I... I don't think you asked me any of the questions in there. I'm trying to think back at it, but you know, good for you. That's the way to go. Because you got to no, no, you, <laughs> you know, no. We actually prepared a very wide range of uh, 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 policy questions that we actually wanted to hear about. But obviously, we really went deep uh, into talking about healthcare, and we really went deep uh, in in talking about your personal journey, why you believe in what, what you believe in, uh, the progressive uh, politics in, in the U.S., and also uh, what you are experiencing and seeing campaigning. So I think those are such valuable words for our audiences uh, and for the voters of New Jersey that, that I think they will truly appreciate. Well, all right. Um, and, and, okay, so uh, I just want to quickly tell our viewers, what's the best way uh, to... Um, contribute to your campaign or, or vote for you or, or learn more about your policies? Um, how can they find more about you? They can go to my website at alpbasran.com. Uh, we have a fantastic website. Um, it has all of our policies there. It has all of our values there. Um, you know, I'm not, again, I'm, I feel uncomfortable in this situation asking people to donate. Um, but, you know, if they want to make a donation, a small dollar donation, one dollars or two dollars uh, would go a long way. It would show, you know, that they still feel passionate about the issues enough uh, that they're willing to spare a tiny sum. And the most important thing is volunteers. If they can call, you know, whether it's me or um, Aidan or Clyde or uh, Sal or John, um, you know, or whether it's Sarah, uh, if they want to call one of our campaign coordinators, um, that would be fantastic. Uh, we can get them into our phone banking pool. We can organize uh, more people uh, to come out and vote for us. Um, and, you know, I think that would be that would be fantastic. If they can go to alpbasaran.com, take a look. And if they like what they see, if they like uh, what they've heard, um, they can click on the volunteer button and uh, join our campaign. And they really got to hop on those Zoom meetings. I'm, 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 I got to tell my audience, you know, that that would be very, very important. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely.
Awesome. Thanks so much for spreading your words. And I hope Pause Pancha has contributed a little bit uh, to, to local politics and also spreading your ideas to, to more people. Thank you again. I'll, uh, and, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, learn more about us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, any platform you may find us. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.